Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History. I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use a version of the game that was played at Princeton. In 1995, a woman who called herself Medi Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just told his story in his own word. Welcome to the Society for American Soccer History's SASH session with Michael Lewis, author of Alive and Kicking, the incredible but true story of the Rochester Lancers. I'm Tom McCabe, president of SASH, uh, so welcome. Uh, founded in 1993, SASH works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into the rich history and heritage of soccer in the United States. You can find us on the web at ussoccerhistory.org and at social media on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. If you'd like to join the society or renew your membership, please visit our website and you can do so through the Join Sash tab. Before we begin today's session, a quick update on a book we featured in a session earlier this year. At last week's North American Society for Sport History Conference, it was announced that this book, uh, edited uh, so ably by George Kiosis, our treasurer here at SAS, and Chris Bolzman, uh, Soccer Frontiers on, on Soccer in the United States uh, before 1913. It won the prize, first prize uh, for best anthology. Almost every chapter was authored by a SASH member, member uh, here on the, the live call. So congratulations to George and Chris and to all those who contributed a uh, uh, major accomplishment uh, in, in the scholarship for American soccer history and, and a definite link uh, to SASH. Now back to our guest today, Michael Lewis uh, has covered the Lancers during the 1970s and the 1980s for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He documented the ups and downs, the twists and turns of Rochester's only major league sports franchise. He'll tell us more about that story uh, in the moments to come. But Lewis's life in soccer didn't end with the NASL's demise as he's covered World Cups, Olympic Games, the arrival and survival of Major League Soccer. Up until 2021, he's attended every single MLS Cup final. He maintains and writes for uh, the website Front Row Soccer, and he has written several other books uh, on soccer. As his Twitter uh, profile uh, proclaims, suggests, if it happened, he was probably there. Uh, so he's been eyewitness uh, to American soccer history uh, for decades now, and we're really thrilled to have him here today to talk about his new book, Alive and Kicking. We'll have Michael first talk about the book project. He's on a book tour right now in Rochester of all places. And then we'll open up the session for Q&A. So Michael, welcome. Uh, and the floor is now yours. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for the introduction. And thank you everyone for uh, being uh, aboard on this uh, Zoom call. <clears throat> you know, before I get into the book itself, I, I wanna give you a little background about myself on how I got to cover the Lancers. Um, Growing up, I always enjoyed O. Henry's work, The Irony of Everything. And um, it's pretty ironic of, that I wound up writing a book about the Lancers that I really didn't want to have anything to do with covering them early on. About two, three weeks into my first, well, first job ever in Rochester, uh, it was a slow Wednesday night at the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. And Myself and another writer, Tom Fitzgerald, were given a very long dinner break. And the Lancers were playing the Italian National Army team that night at Hollander Stadium. Um, maybe some old NASL fans or uh, Cosmos fans might remember a rickety old stone stadium that was surrounded. The field was surrounded by a snow fence to keep the, the fans out. We go to the game. And just before halftime, there's a pitch invasion by about 200 fans, and they attacked the home team. I had never seen anything like this before. I'm just, I said to myself, I'm glad I don't have to cover this Motley crew. What a, what a headache and a half. And during the season, they had a coach that was fired when the team was in first place. 
the owner took over the team coaching it for one game. They lost seven to one. And I said, this is a, a train wreck. So like DNC has me uh, cover high schools early on, which is fine with me, low, you know, bottom man on the totem pole. And I enjoy doing that. About six months later, January 1975, I'm called over to the desk of assistant editor Bill Parker. He has a pile of files. And he asks uh, me, um, well, he actually tells me, uh, you know, we think you're doing well. And he starts talking about soccer and about the Lancers. And I'm thinking, oh, no, my worst fears are going to be coming to fruition. And basically, he says at the end of it, and I don't remember anything that he says, because I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. He pushes over a bunch of files to me and says, congratulations, you're covering your first professional sports team. And all I wanted to do is push it back. No, thank you. But hey, I'm a rookie writer. I'm still under probation. They had a year probation then. My first job, and in sports writing, any job is a, is a dream job, especially your first job. Can't say no. I wound up learning about the sport. I had some great mentors on the, on the newspaper, outside of the newspaper. And here I am almost five decades later um, covering the game and, and writing a book about the team. Okay, the, you, that's my um, beginning of my soccer writing background. Um, I learned how beautiful the beautiful game is, how much I enjoyed it, meeting different um, nationalities, learning uh, what it was like around the world, getting a chance to travel, um, maybe on someone's own book instead of my own. Um, and you wonder why a book about the Rochester Lancers? Well, with all deference, due deference to the New York Cosmos, there were other teams around back in the 1970s and 80s in the North American Soccer League. And after covering the Lancers, and they had so many incredible adventures on and off the field, I figured, got to tell the world about this. And this is something I wanted to do way back in the 70s. But as we all know, I think all of our projects or most of our projects are always put on the wayside, on the back burner, because we have to earn money to pay them the mortgage, the rent and, and whatnot. So um, I wanted to do this for years. Um, and I decided um, about 10, 12 years ago, I am finally going to write this thing. And it took 10, 12 years to compile it, to be as concise as I could. Um, you know, one thing that I was influenced by is I've been to England uh, 15, 16 times, and I, I could not believe some of the histories of the various clubs that they have there, the, the largest clubs and even clubs that maybe don't even exist anymore. And I took a look at some of those books and, he, and I said, you, this is incredible. And I figured, I think every team in the United States, every soccer team in the U.S. should have its own history written. And, uh, and that's another reason why I decided to pursue the book. Um, I got, I have to admit the book is very detailed. It gets into the weeds, as I like to say, it details every game, even with times of the goals of, of the team. Uh, <clears throat> I figured that the Lancers had such a roller coaster ride. If I just wrote about this crazy thing happened and this crazy thing happened, there is no context between all this. You needed to talk about the games, the winning streaks, the losing streaks, the crazy stuff that happened in the locker room. Uh, after one of the games, they won one nothing, and Mike Stajanovic, their striker, their star striker, and the assistant coach were fighting. They had to be held back. And the assistant coach told Stajanovic, you should have scored more goals. Because at the time, if you, if you remember, the NASL had a point scoring system where a team would get a point for every goal scored up until three. So the assistant coach felt the Lancers lost a couple of extra points. I saw this fight happening. And when I say a fight, it wasn't, they, there were no punches thrown, but there was a hell of a 
war of words. And um, it, it was almost like a, a Tower of Babel in there with all the various uh, languages happening. Uh, again, they're fighting after a win. It's almost like, I guess, the old Bronx Zoo of the New York Yankees. Um, a lot of uh, interesting characters on this team. Um, Charlie Shiano, one of the owners, was a member of the city council. He was the lone Republican on the city council. His nickname was uh, Lonesome Charlie. Um, he wound up coaching the Lancers three times. Uh, he had a winning record, believe it or not. Uh, was the general manager of the team. And he also did uh, soccer uh, radio anal and analysis as well, too. So talk about someone who was wearing a lot of hats. Very controversial guy. We didn't always get along, as you could probably guess, uh, because I was writing about some of the um, uh, of that roller coaster ride with the Lancers. Uh, believe it or not, now he's uh, we get along very, very well. I think he's very happy that I wrote about uh, about his team. But uh, it, I just thought it was important to talk about this team and maybe to teach the new generation that it's not all about MLS and these great, fantastic stadiums. Back in the day. Um, teams were barely getting by. They did not have billionaire owners. They, a lot of teams didn't have billionaire owners. The Lancers, were, for the most of, of their existence, were owned by local people who were well-to-do, and they were essentially a community team. They had barbecues at the homes of, of their owners. Uh, think of that happening today, maybe in the USL, perhaps, but MLS, no. And I think, you know, again, this is North American Soccer League, first division in the United States. And this is what it was like way back in the day. Um, and besides that roller coaster ride, the Lancers did have some significant uh, history that helped save soccer in this country. Um, back in 1969, uh, they joined the North American Soccer League, which had only four teams after that season. And there was no way that they could call themselves a National Soccer League with only four teams. So um, Clive Toy, Lamar Hunt, they visited Rochester, uh, did some convincing. I think there was an interesting back and forth negotiations that happened at a, at an, a motel at O'Hare Airport. Um, and the Lancers, joined the, the league, and so did the Washington Darts. And that gave the, uh, the NASL six teams, which was a life preserver, at least. Um, but you just imagine if there was no NASL, you just wonder how soccer would have grown since then. Would have there been a team in New York to have Pelé? Pelé, who helped seed what, what was youth soccer back then, what we see today. Perhaps it would have happened anyway. We don't know. Um, speaking of history, the Lancers also played in the longest soccer game ever in uh, U.S. soccer history, 176-minute marathon. They didn't have overtime in the 1971 playoffs, so they played until a, a team scored. Uh, a minute before midnight in September 1971, Carlos Medetieri scores. Uh, to give the Lancers a two-to-one victory over the Dallas Tornado in the 1971 semifinals. So uh, a lot of history there as well, too. Um, you know, like it or not, as the NASL grew, the Lancers could not keep up. And when Pelé came into the league, which there was a big deal about it in Rochester, when Pelé showed up, they would fill up Hollard Stadium. But the problem was um, they were getting millionaires into the uh, buying into the league. Lancer owners were not millionaires. Like I said, they were well-to-do. And like it or not, the league started to move ahead of the Lancers. And you could probably guess there were more adventures. I'm not going to go specifically into them uh, unless you ask, ask me about it. But um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. So thank you very much, uh, Michael, and, and we'll open uh, the floor. 
since I have the mic, I'm going to ask the, the first question. Um, historians are always interested in, in source material. And right. oftentimes there are not a whole lot of sources to tell our stories. So my first question is this. What did you use to, to tell this tale decades uh, later? Uh, I'm assuming a personal archive, you know, other mm -hmm. work. So, so how did you tell the, you know, these stories uh, surrounding the Lancers? Yeah, it's, I, I, yeah, I think as historians, I think we all like to learn how everyone dug up things. Uh, yes, personal archives, way back in the day when I first started out, when there were real newspapers, <laughs> um, I had a clip book and I put every story I had in, no matter what I covered, big or small. I was that excited and proud of it. And I had the six years I had covered the Lancers, I had every story I covered. And not only that, other people's stories too, so I could do some research. When Charlie Shiano was talking to me when we were on good terms, he gave me his scrapbook collection of the team from 1967 to 1976. Late at night at the Democrat and Chronicle, I don't know if I should be saying this, they might charge me for this now, but I went to, to the copy machine in the wire room and just made copies of all his stories in there. I just said, I'm going to need this someday. And I think maybe, like I said, back then I had this inclination of writing a book. Um, went to the Rochester Public Library, microfilm to fill in some gaps because even as copious a collection as Charlie had, there were still some um, things that needed to be uh, filled in. Um, I think a, a big deal was newspapers.com a number of years ago, where beyond Rochester stories, I got an opportunity to look at other newspapers to see other um, renditions of games, maybe a quote from a player that would be perfect for a, uh, for a story. Um, and I'll tell you this, I still feel like I'm still missing some things, believe it or not. Um, and there were obviously interviews beyond when I covered the team. I, I started uh, talking to players in the early 2000s. I, I spoke with um, David Sa Dave Saragin, who wound up being the interim uh, U.S. national team coach in what, about four or five years ago, um, spoke to him in 2001 about some of his adventures with the team. Um, and he, you know, sometimes at the time, players aren't going to tell you stuff on the record way back in the 1970s, but years later, hey, the team can't fire, find them or fire them or anything like that. And I'll tell you a little thing about Dave. Um, Dave was uh, a Rochester uh, boy. He lived at home while playing for the Lancers. He was making, get this now, $80 a week. That's right, $80 a week. Um, but of course, when you're living at home, maybe that's, you might not feel like a millionaire, but it, you feel a lot better. Anyway, the team goes to Team Hawaii. They lose four to one. They play horribly. Dave winds up playing the last 12 minutes of the match or so off the, the bench. And as I said about the team not being in great financial shape, they, the management decides to, fi to fine the entire team a week's salary or, um, or, or $200. Unfortunately, um, the next time there was a paycheck, Dave opens it up and he doesn't see his check. He sees a thing that says, you owe us $120. So he had to wait for his next paycheck for that to go through. Um, there was not a, a players union back then. That would have been one incredible case at the time. I think today it would be a hell of a scandal. But, um, but he was able to tell me that story way back in 2001. And I, I, you know, and I wound up talking to other players, obviously, through the years, getting new stories, double-checking things, um, and uh, slowly but surely it, it came together. And thank God for computers. When I first started in this business, there were uh, typewriters. With computers, you could add stuff, move things around. I mean, and uh, that has helped tremendously as well, too. 
Um, so I've always looked at myself as a journalist, as a scavenger, and as a and the same thing as an author too. You can take a little from here, a little from there, um, and you never know what you're going to find. Uh, sometimes you stumble into stuff. All of a sudden, so, someone finds me on the internet and says, "Hey, I have this old story you might want to uh, be interested in," and that's how this whole thing came together. And I've got a straight, I would not be surprised if a, a lot of the people who are on this uh, maybe shaking their heads. Yeah, all this sounds familiar. You know, you, you take what you could find. And it's funny because when I was putting the finishing touches to this book, I, I told my wife, Joy, who edited it, I said, I know there's other material out there, but I got to finish this thing or th this thing will never get published. So uh, I know you gave me a short question, but there's a long story and long answer. Love it. We we all, uh, you know, are, are, are brethren in, in those stories uh, in, in and around the source materials. Uh, David Kilpatrick has got the next question. Have Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think, Michael, you, you made the mistake about eight or 10 years ago telling me you were working on this. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, which again, you know, sometimes a lot of us like to keep these things a little closer to the vest so we don't get pestered. So uh, I'm so thrilled of years of saying, you, you working on it? How's it going? How's it going? Just so great. And, and as a kid growing up in upstate New York and, and Memphis, Tennessee, my grandparents lived in Rochester. Uh, I had an uncle named Lance. So I did have a Rochester Lancers pennant on the wall. <laughs> and my little 1V imaginary friend games, I would often be playing Cosmos against the Lancers. Uh, so they were always kind of a team that I, they weren't my team, it was that other end of, of New York State, but uh, <laughs> strong connections there. My, my question's kind of related to that a little bit in that um, you know, the first ball game I ever went to wasn't a soccer game, but it was a Rochester Red Wings baseball game. So um, something that always struck me about the Lancers uh, was that the way in which that did kind of make Rochester for lack of a better term, a major league town. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about getting that beat with the Lancers, how it, you, you talk about how it felt a little bit like punishment, but how did that react? How did that relate to say the Red Wings beat or the Americans beat for hockey? You know, the, the role of the Lancers in town, the dynamic around them, Rochester has become such a great soccer town and has been since then. And also related to that a little bit, you, you alluded to this a little bit before. Um, to me, this is part of the same question, I think, I hope. Um, that jump from the ASL to the NASL, when Clive was able to get them to make that shift, that wasn't really a conscious, we're going from a second division to first division thing, right? It, it, it almost seemed like that was a really big risk they were taking by making sure they filled out the, the five and the six. So I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of those notions of major league, minor league, first division, second division, and uh, um, that legacy even of, of the Rhinos winning an open cup and, and it being such a great town. Just wondering if, if you could talk about that in terms of major league, minor league, divisional status and what it was like in Rochester at the time. Well, uh, I'll, answer, I'll answer the first question. And if I forget the second question, please remind me. Um, at the time, I would say the Rochester Red Wings, where the baseball team was the number one beat. Then came the Rochester Americans, which I actually wound up covering four years for four years after the uh, Lancers went out of business, which I had a lot of fun doing that as well. And I've learned, enjoy whatever thing, whatever you're covering. But um, then came the Lancers and and. The Lancers at that time, 1975, they were a bit frowned upon because there were rumors every year that they were going to move. They, there were threats they might move to, to Buffalo. And there were a number of people who were just tired of that. And they were, they were going through some tough times after having some of their glory years as well. Um, but uh, they got coverage on a regular basis. And... Uh, they the, the paper gave me the room beyond the news stories, the game stories, to write features. And at that time, and this was an education for me, different nationalities, different situations. So they were 
getting probably minimal of five days a week in the newspapers and some maybe by the end of their existence maybe every day in the newspapers some shape or form either a news story feature story and on on a sunday when they had their home games multiple stories i called it nfl coverage uh at least at the time so they um i think and i give the yet my editors a lot of credit for seeing this because they had the first and last words of of um of having the uh, of, of giving a team coverage but they gave the lancers their due in their later years uh, and, and you know the crowds were nowhere near what other nasl teams have forget about the cosmos at the time the cosmos were filling up giant stadium but they were getting seven eight nine ten thousand uh, averaging a game which was very good for this city um so uh they they had grown in stature, and I think near, near the end, at least, they were getting the benefit of the doubt by the media uh, in, on their in their coverage. I think the Lancers' ownership wanted more coverage uh, because they were major league. It's it's interesting, by the way, when you mentioned uh, major league soccer. In my research, people were calling it, and when when they went to the North American Soccer League, major league soccer. It was all. It was lowercase. It was no. It wasn't major league soccer as as of today. Um, but uh, and your second question again. I'm sorry. The second part of that question. Well, I, I guess it, it, again, it, it, you are kind of addressing that in terms of that leap of faith that they made going from the ASL to the NASL. It wasn't like the ASL thought of itself as second division, right? I mean, yeah. At the time, I think it was a lot closer. Uh, the problem with the ASL, and they had a lot of talented players and a number of, of very good teams. Um, <laughs> some teams were dropping out in the middle of the season. Some teams, and I know the Boston Astros, and they were owned by a very passionate, uh, a passionate owner. They would every few games they would have to move from stadium to stadium because they might not have had the uh, wherewithal or money to to pay up. Uh, you know, or they found a, a cheaper venue to play at. And I think the Lancers were getting tired of all these crazy things. One time, um, the, the Newark team showed up um, two hours after the fact, after, after kickoff. And they, this is before there were cell phones, remember? So it was pay phones calling up and, and whatnot. And um, I think the Lancers were getting fed up a bit, again, with the antics, maybe off the field more than on the field. Again, you had some quality sides there. And I think given the, the track record of the North American Soccer League at the time that they had, what, 18 teams at one time, they looked at it as major league overall, even though, again, four teams does not make a major league at all. So I think they, they wanted to move, move up when given that opportunity, they felt that they could add something to the league. And for 1970, 71, 72, you could definitely make a, a case that they were the class of the league. Again, before um, the, the Cosmos uh, turned soccer upside down in this country, for the best, too, by the way. Excellent. On to Kevin Talek Marston, who's got a question. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you can hear me, right, Michael? Yes, I can. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Uh, very much looking forward to reading the, the, the whole book. I obviously haven't, haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, I have two questions. One, which from the description of your book, apparently you talk about, so I was hoping you could, you could expand on that a little bit now, um, is on the international side of Rochester in 1971. And um, the second part is more on the ownership side and, and just the connection between the club and the wider ethnic soccer uh, landscape in Rochester and, and in the area. So with respect to, um, to 1971, obviously, um, you know, Rochester played in, in CONCACAF. And I wanted to know if you could just, maybe without giving away everything that's in that chapter, probably in, in the book, um, but if you could expand just a little bit more on, on that, that, because that's kind of a unique 
aspect to a lot of the a lot of the teams um, at this point is playing in a competition like that. And I wonder what interesting stories came out of that. And then on the let's say the ownership and ethnicity side, um, you know, from from what I gather, you have an ownership group of Italian Americans. Um, and, you know, uh, Rochester has that interesting demographic bubble where, you know, it hits the high point in the 1950s and then is starting to, to tail off. And by the end of the 1970s, you know, Rochester, like, you know, some of the other post-industrial cities is, is kind of, di you know, dipping down. And so people are moving away and, and industries is, is falling. And so I was curious um, what other connections there were in you know how, how strong the ethnicity was in in um, in the ownership group, particularly I, I you know for example that you've got you know an, a Ukrainian community that's thriving playing soccer in the 1950s and 60s in Rochester, was there any mixing there, um, or you know was the was the Lancers purely a um, you know this was the Italian American ownership group, but they didn't necessarily want to make this anything about ethnicity at all. Very well, okay. I'll answer your second question first. Lancer's roots come from the Italian American Sport Club. In 1963, Italian American Sport Club, actually they've been around since 1948, and it became more than a sport club, it became more of a community uh, club as well too. Um, and, um, but in 1963, the uh, Italian team won the US Amateur Cup um, after so many years of trying. And from, uh, I'll make a long story as short as possible. From that team came, came the Lancers. Uh, several members of that team wound up playing for the Lancers in the American Soccer League. Um, the Lancers were not just, yes, they had an Italian ownership for the most part, but they also uh, wanted to have as good a team as any. So they were a mixture of different nationalities. Ukrainians, Don Lalka, who was probably their first big American star at the time, um, a good young player, personal uh, uh, young player, who, by the way, helped me out with some interesting uh, stories in the book, too. Um, and they had Germans on the team, Brazilians uh, as well, too, Uruguayans. It was a mixture. It was, uh, I know it's a cliche, you know, United Nations lineup, but that's what they had well before it became that 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 so-called cliche so it, it it was an interesting mixture and in fact over the years they had less and less italians on the team it was just trying to get the best players possible during the later years they had um, well at that time it was yugoslavian they were called yugoslavians now we'd call them serbians and croatian players um on the team plus portuguese and again anyone who could could play play the game and maybe not demand a you ridiculous salary as well too so it um it was an interesting uh, i guess you had to start somewhere and at the time in the uh, rochester district soccer league you had teams you know the italian american sport club the ukrainian americans the german americans it was you know, ethnic teams and from those teams came a, a player or two to join the Lancers or try out for the Lancers because I think the owner again those those, those owners realized you can't rely on just one nationality um, in answer to your first question boy I, I, I wish I could have been alive to see the Lancers play in CONCACAF because they were the first American professional team to play there I know Elizabeth um an amateur team that played there uh, played in the competition, the CONCACAF Champions Cup, a year prior. But yes, the Lancers had some intriguing adventures there. Um, it, after they were eliminated from the 1971 playoffs, yes, they even though they did win that 176-minute playoff game, they wound up losing the series to the Dallas uh, Tornado, losing, by the way, in the third game, a 148-minute game. I'm not trying to get sidetracked there. <clears throat> About a month later, Lancers have to head for uh, Bermuda to play Pembroke. And um, well, in their first game, they win 4 nothing, no problem. Second game, yeah, it was a problem playing on a home field, and Pembroke winds up tying the game or the tying the series. 
and it's all tied up at four. And there comes a, a big moment in the game when Roberto Leonardo falls on the ball by accident. The fans are yelling for a handball. Referee doesn't see it. And I guess the Lancers are now saying, thank God there is no such thing as VAR at that time. They go down on a break, shoot, score, and they wind up winning five to the series five to four. There were no uh, away goal rules or anything like that. It was total goals. They ran into their uh, locker room and the fans were peeved, obviously, on what had happened. And they're not uh, knocking on the door, thumping on the windows, that sort of thing, until the police got them away. Um, and the Lancers were able to return to their hotel. So that was an adventure and a half just, just from that. <clears throat> they wound up, um, that got them into the final uh, final series in Guatemala, Guatemala City uh, in March. And if you know anything about the weather in Rochester <laughs> in the wintertime, and I lived up here for 10 years, and sometimes things didn't thaw out until April, how in the hell do you practice outdoors when there's snow on the ground? And players at that time would go return to their home country too. They wouldn't return to the United States. And I'm talking about all soccer, uh, all soccer players playing in the North American Soccer League. They wouldn't return until right before the season. Now, Lancers have to play in March. And they're not used to playing in March. So they wind up training indoors at a high school gymnasium. And they go into this competition without playing any exhibition games, without playing any outdoor games. And I, I give them a lot of credit. Um, it was a six-game uh, round-robin type tournament. Um, and the Lancers, uh, I think, did quite well. Uh, I'll try not to give too many of the crazy stories off the field. Um, but they finished in fourth place. They went two, two, and one. That was two wins, uh, two losses, and one draw. And when you look at it, for a North American team at the time, uh, from a country that had not qualified for the World Cup in, what, 22 years at the time, that was quite, uh, quite an, uh, an accomplishment. And, um, yes, there were some interesting um, – I'll try not to uh, – take away uh, some of the surprise in the book, but there were some interesting incidents uh, before games and interesting games, some funny moments. Um, some players decided to, to get to leave the hotel one night and they walk into a hotel and who's there, uh, walks into a bar and who's there, but the owner and the trainer of the team. Oops, they're in, <laughs> they're in trouble. But at that juncture, they couldn't afford to, to get rid of any players. But all things considered, they had a, they did quite well and acquitted themselves well, again, for a team that had not even had, had any outdoor practice sessions, which um, is mind-boggling. A follow-up, quick follow-up question uh, from the chat. Stephen Torres, uh, considering that success of the Lancers in 70-71, why didn't other NASL clubs uh, follow in their footsteps and, and compete in, in the champions? Um, I, 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 you know, I'm trying to remember the exact reason why. I don't want to give false information. I think at the time, I, I, I think the league or the teams just did not want to maybe potentially embarrass themselves at the time. Uh, maybe they did not have a, 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 enough confidence in that they, they, they could do well. I think the Cosmos would have done incredibly well myself. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, before, after the Lancers beat um, uh, Pembroke from uh, Bermuda, Phil Woosdom and some of the uh, NASL owners weren't very happy about the fact that the Lancers were going to um, compete in Guatemala. And at one of the NASL meetings, uh, one of the Lancer owners, Pat Dinolfo, who was, I guess, if you called Charlie Sciano the bad cop, Pat Dinolfo was the good cop. He did not, uh, he did not make um, much noise or controversy. 
He was so mad at the rest of the NASL Board of Governors, he took a chair and threw it against the room because he said, there's no way you're going to stop the Lancers from competing in the, in the CONCACAF Champions Cup. So anyway, that I, my gut feeling is I think teams were afraid of, um, um, of not playing well in it after the Lancers. Thank you. Uh, next question goes to uh, club historian of Chicago House, Chuck Carlson. Can you hear me? I always yes, I can. Feedback on the technology. Michael, thank you very much for your presentation. And I also am certainly looking forward to reading the book. Uh, it sounds huh. great. Um, my question is also related to the ownership group. Were they true believers in soccer and wanting to spread the gospel of the greatest game? And then secondly, um, you mentioned the UN nature of the team. Can you talk a bit about the North American players beyond Sarakin that played for the Lancers? Thank sure. Uh, the owners, <clears throat> they, uh, excuse me, they got their soccer bug watching the 1966 World Cup. Um, and they were excited about it, just like so many other uh, fans and owners throughout the country. And that's why they decided to join the American Soccer League they knew at the time they weren't, Rochester wasn't big enough. They didn't have enough money to join the NASL, obviously. So they were passionate ab about spreading the, as you said, the gospel. And, you know, the, yes, the Lancers owners want to make money on the team. Sure they did, but all they wanted to do was uh, just break even and have a successful team in Rochester forever. That's all they wanted. Um, again, if they had a pocket, a couple thousand dollars, they wouldn't mind it. But they lost they lost a lot of money through the years, and God bless them for doing it. And uh, it's funny because the first word of the book, of, of, of the first uh, chapter, the, I, the first word is passion. I talk about the passion of the players who played for the Italian-American uh, sport club. Um, and I think and that also is a underlying theme throughout the book for some of the, uh, for, for all of the owners. Um, they cared about this team because it was in their own backyard too. Like I said, they had barbecues with the players. Um, they wanted to see it succeed in so many ways possible. Um, and they never thought about getting rich from it. Um, as for the other North American, uh, North American players, yes, they had quite a few. By the way, unfortunately, Dave didn't get an opportunity to play that much with the Lancers. Um, they had the Americanization rule at the time, and I don't have it in my mind how many there was. By the time the NAS, by 1980, I think you needed four or five North American citizens on the team. But by then, Dave uh, had left the team. Dave actually established himself professionally indoors, and that's that helped save his career. Uh, but going back to some of the uh, top North American players, Jim Pollahan, um, a forward from uh, Quincy College uh, out in Missouri. Um, basically, Don Popovich, the uh, coach at the time, actually, we called him Dragon in the story, in our game stories and our, in our feature stories, because it was much better for a headline when you could say dragon breathes fire after a loss. But uh, Popovich said, listen, I want you to play, but I, I, I don't think you're good enough to play as a forward. Could you play as a defender, as a left back? Heck, you're going to play professionally, professional soccer? Yeah, you're going to take any position. So Jim Pollahan established himself as a left back, wound up playing for the, uh, for the uh, U.S. men's national team. Uh, and um, had a number of uh, caps. I think he had about uh, 10 or 12 caps. This is off the top of my head. Uh, Don Draghi, uh, in 1977, the next year, Lancers dra uh, drafted him from St. Louis University. Um, he wound up playing at right back and sometimes at, uh, at center back as well, too. And uh, he had a nice long career in the uh, North American Soccer League. Uh, and I think he played a little indoors as well, too. And Don also played for the U.S. national team uh, as well. Those are the two most prominent American players on the team. Because of uh, 
the U uh, of Rochester's um, closeness to Canada, they had a number of Canadian players, some naturalized citizens, some born there. Uh, Bronco Segoda, who uh, had a 20-year career indoors and outdoors. God bless him. Who has a 20-year career these days outside of being a goalkeeper? Um, he's, he's from Toronto. They had an incredible Toronto uh, connection. Um, you know, Pat Urkeley from, from uh, Toronto. Mike Stojanovic, who was actually born in Serbia, but emigrated to uh, Toronto and, and played in the Canadian National Soccer League for a number of years. He, he came from Canada as well, too. So an incredible, uh, they, the team had an incredible connection um, with, with uh, Canadian soccer and particularly Toronto soccer as well, too. Those are just uh, some of the North American players who made an impact with the team. There, there are some others, but those are the, uh, the leading ones. I know you, before I forget, uh, because I'm going to get yelled at since he wrote the forward of the book, Shep Messing played a year with the team in 1979. And what made this unique was that Shep didn't live in Rochester at the time. He, he continued to live in Roslyn, New York on Long Island. And he commuted to Rochester for games. And I think you're probably thinking he did what? He hardly practiced with the team unless it was a day before the game or maybe on away games. All things considered, the defense wasn't the problem with the team. I mean, uh, they had a very good defense at the time. But, um, you know, we all know Shep, a character at the time. And um, today, a, a respected uh, uh, announcer of New York Red Bull games. But it's funny. I think we were waiting for the defense to collapse, to Shep Messing to make a crazy error. And he never did. Or the, at least I don't remember that. And um, I give him a lot of credit, but man, what an experiment that had to be not, you know, working with your defense, but they, they almost made the playoffs too, but that's another story. You'll have to read the book on how they didn't make the playoffs. We've gone through our first round of questions. We might have some follow-ups, but, but before we do that, how can we get uh, the book, the best place uh, to go? Um, some details about that. Yeah, um, it, this is a self-published book. And unfortunately, there's the only place to go is Amazon.com. Uh, and yeah, some people might say, yeah, they might not be thrilled about uh, paying Amazon. Um, well, um, for I try to, to get a special coupon and unfortunately, I can't do it for Amazon books. Um, that's just the way their rules are at the moment. However, I'm willing to give all SASH members $4 off. If, if you'd like uh, to purchase a book through me, you can still purchase it through Amazon, but it'll be postage will be uh, taken care of by me. You could send it to my um, email address. Sock writer, that's S O C W R I T E R at AOL.com. And uh, I'll, we could work out a, a, a payment uh, method as well, too. But I'm willing to do $4 off. I can't do that coupon on, on Amazon. I'm a little disappointed on that. It would make a lot, make life a lot easier for everyone. Any other follow-up questions? We, we'd love to keep this uh, at an hour because we know uh, Michael is on a book tour and uh, you know we'll be speaking about uh, the book uh, for, for hours to come. So uh, we want to preserve his voice, one of the leading voices in American soccer history. We want to preserve that. Any, any other uh, questions, follow-up questions uh, you'd like to throw? Yeah, if I may, just um, you alluded to this a little bit. You know, Shep, uh, with that long commute, you mentioned Branko Sagoda. Uh, Stoyanovic, um, that wild experiment that went the other direction uh, with the outdoor Lancers kind of morphing into the New York Arrows. I wondered if you could just talk about that. Um, how was the reception to that mm -hmm. upstate, uh, especially as the Arrows became such a phenomenon? And to what degree did perhaps the Buffalo Stallions maybe uh, infringe upon the Lancers' popularity towards the tail end as well? Uh, all things considered, I think the Arrows-Lancers connection worked out 
well in that it gave players an opportunity to make more money because they weren't making a lot of money at the time. Jim Pollahan, the best North American, was making maybe $19,000. And now he could almost double that. Yes, he had to play more and maybe expend more energy and have less time between seasons. But as we all know, soccer seasons are, um, are 10 months these days, not six months. Um, although the transition from indoor to outdoor was an interesting one. Um, I'll give you an example. In New York Arrows, 1979, they win the first uh, major indoor soccer league championship in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. A week later, they return to the same block at Veteran Stadium, the Lancers do, with many of the Arrow players to play the Philadelphia team, Philadelphia Fury. Yeah, they lost that game like 2 nothing, 3 nothing. They didn't play well. Um, they just it looked like a band that uh, the instruments were playing on, on their own uh, their own tune. It took them a while to, to get used to uh, playing to, with one another. Yeah, you can't transition from the indoor game to the outdoor game in one week. They eventually did that season, and like I said, they made a playoff run. Um, the uh, I think in the long run, I, uh, I think the fans up there welcomed the fact that the, the Lancers were able to play indoors uh, because they could follow them. They could, uh, the players could make a living. And also, they, at least they had a championship team to play for. I called the, um, the Arrows the Lancers South. Some people didn't like that back on Long Island. I, and then some Lancers wound up playing for the Baltimore Blast, which I called them the Lancers Deep South. And then the Buffalo Stallions, they had some Lancers on their team as well, too. And I loved it as a writer because it gave me an excuse to see indoor soccer during the winter and cover the game. And I called them Lancers West. And I mean, obviously, I always said Buffalo Stallions first, but always having a, a little fun with things. And I'll tell you this, the, 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 the rivalry between the Buffalo Stallions and the Arrows was second to none in that league. Players knew each other. They were teammates. Maybe they weren't always happy being teammates with one another, but it was a fierce rivalry. Uh, some of the craziest indoor games I've ever encountered and wrote about. And as a writer, the crazier, the better. Um, and um, I, I, I'm glad the Stallions were around for so many years. Uh, it made, at least from a writing standpoint, a lot of fun for me. So it, I think it upped uh, the rivalry and, and the intensity of the game. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us. Uh, all the best uh, with the book tour events, uh, you know, this weekend and, and in the future. And uh, we really want to thank you for joining us here at Sash. And uh, we'll uh, do our best to, to spread the word uh, about this really important club history. And, and as you said uh, at the outset, you know, we need more of these. I know we have some club historians uh, on the call. Others will, will watch the video, but, uh, you know, they can walk in your footsteps uh, and uh, and contribute to, to the American uh, soccer scape. So thank you, Michael. All the best with the book tour. Listen, thank you for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Listen, good luck to everyone out there who's writing their own books. I'm going to be looking forward to listening to your chats, uh, Zoom chats in the not too distant future. Thank you again.